Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. Today, we go to Budapest, Hungary to explore the future of healthcare. Like so much of our lives, healthcare has gone digital. Today's guest is the director of the Medical Futurist Institute, Dr. Bertalan Meshko. We discuss how devices like fitness trackers and embedded sensors, along with telehealth, are empowering patients by putting them at the center of the healthcare experience. Dr. Meshko also discusses what this means to privacy and how we can protect patients who may not be tech savvy. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. You can learn more and access the Institute's latest research at T, the number two, PRI.org. Dr. Meshko, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you so much for having me. You are director of the Medical Futurist Institute. Could you talk about what the organization does and what you do for the organization? Of course, I would love to. Um, I'm, I'm the medical futurist and my job is to try to help organizations like medical associations and governments, as well as individuals like patients and physicians, understand the context around digital health technologies. What does artificial intelligence mean? How we can use variable sensors or robotics or 3D printing in the everyday practice of medicine? And that's what we do with a small team of 15 people on medicalfuturist.com and its related channels. And at the Medical Futurist Institute, we do the same in peer-reviewed research. We publish studies about the same topics, basically uh, the role AI will play in the future of medicine, as well as the, what digital, how digital health technologies shape the doctor-patient relationship. When you think about the future of healthcare and medicine, how does it look a decade from now? I think most people might expect that in a decade from now, we will have shiny hospitals full of great technologies. But the vision we share at the medical future is a bit different because having those big hospitals is just not efficient enough. The vision we share has something in the focus, which is digital health technologies making patients the point of care, meaning wherever you are, you should be able to receive diagnostics, treatments, monitoring, uh, and, and your life wouldn't depend whether you can get to a physical location or not. The physical location would get to you because now we can measure data with these technologies and we can even make good decisions remotely. Can you define what you mean by digital health technologies? Of course. Um, there are a lot of discussions. There have been many discussions uh, since the beginning of the 21st century about some advanced technologies like health sensors, wearables, fitness trackers, as well as robotics, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, many others, and how these technologies have been shaping uh, the de delivery of healthcare, uh, the practice of medicine. And most of these discussions have been about how this is all a big technological revolution. While the, the, by we have been publishing about this, we think this is a cultural transformation of healthcare. So here are these amazing technologies that just you know came out a few years ago. Um, this, the whole transformation we see in healthcare might be initiated by these technologies, but the driving force is the way the doctor-patient relationship is changing because of these technologies. The driving force is how the, the role of a passive patient is transforming into an 
proactive, empowered patient role. How the role of the physician who is burned out and has to take all the responsibility for medical decisions, still doing administration in 60% of their time, becoming an, a proactive um, e-physician who can enjoy using technologies and spending their precious time with the patient while being surrounded by these um, advanced technologies. So by digital health, we mean this cultural transformation. By this, we mean that we do use disruptive technologies, but only for the purpose of improving the doctor-patient relationship. And the reason why we think it's so important to say this out loud, that this is a cultural transformation, is that if you put really amazing technologies into hospital right now, you, you bring their AI-based uh, algorithms, VR devices and headsets and all the fitness and variable sensors you know about, I guarantee that the quality of care will not improve, not, in, not by tomorrow, not even in six months or a year, because people work in the system. And if we don't embrace the cultural components of this change, then technologies alone cannot make healthcare better. We can make it better by using these advanced technologies. So that's what digital health is about. Now, please understand that healthcare and medicine is not my background, but I do have an idea for where the field could go. And so I want to describe a scenario for you and you tell me if I'm off base or that is where we're headed. When you talk about digital healthcare, you're talking about sensors, you're talking about fitness apps, you're talking about artificial intelligence. So I'm thinking about a patient who, who might have um, different sensors embedded in their body, maybe using a fitness app or fitness tracking system. And that information is being shared via the cloud to some sort of healthcare system. And it's matching my data with millions of other people who might fit into a demographic like mine. And it's sensing when I might be at risk for a heart attack, or it's sensing before I get type 2 diabetes that I might be at risk for type 2 diabetes, and it's alerting my physician, and then we're having a conversation about it. Is that where we're headed? Is that a somewhat accurate description of what the future might look like? I think it is, and it's not even futuristic enough. If you didn't mention diabetes at the end, I would say this has happened so many times before with smartwatches that can do an ECG and and send a warning sign to the user's smartphone if there is a risk for atrial fibrillation, AFib. That's also a risk for stroke. I, I We had a story published on medicalfutures.com last Christmas where an IT developer from Budapest had a smartwatch. He got a, a gift for Christmas and his smartwatch immediately warned him that he might have a risk for that um, atrial fibrillation. So he went to check to, to get himself checked out like two days later during Christmas time. And it turned out that he required an operation because it was a serious issue, even though he had no symptoms. And maybe even years from that time, he would not have had any symptoms, uh, but he was lucky. So in, in many medical conditions, it has been happening already. What the, the, the scenario you mentioned, I think it's absolutely viable because these are the, the paper studies and trends that we are seeing day by day, that these papers are coming out showing how AI-based databases and, and algorithms can help predict disease outcomes or might even help uh, catch diseases as early as possible. The issue is not whether it's technologically possible. Now, I think by 2020, we can now conclude that there is zero doubt that not, in, not only in diabetes, in hundreds of medical conditions and thousands of medical outcomes or clinical outcomes, 
it is possible to use these AIB systems for such uh, early warning or prediction uh, systems. But the issue is the, the privacy part, that without our data, without your medical records, your insights from your smartwatches, so, so your, your data coming from all sorts of uh, background resources, there is no AI revolution. So we must share some parts of it so companies can develop better algorithms that can make these accurate predictions. It's something like it's a scenario where we will have to lose some parts of our privacy to have the systems that you just described. You talk about a few different models, different countries that are doing things differently, China, Rwanda, the United States, and Estonia. Would you mind talking about those models as it relates to privacy and the type of care that is being given in those countries? Absolutely. I, I was invited to give a keynote at Globsec, one of the most exciting uh, global events about privacy, security, and cybersecurity. And I was asked to to focus on digital health components of this uh, technological, cultural AI revolution. And we, we sat down with some of our researchers and we came up with uh, four scenarios by focusing on the, uh, the freedom of choice in this respect. So the issue was, what if we have a country with a certain healthcare system and if we have a patient in that system, what kind of freedom of choice that patient has? And that freedom of choice can come from, from different sources. Like if someone lives in China where they implemented AI uh, surveillance systems using artificial intelligence, in many cases, you have no chance of opting out. Uh, you are being pushed to use these systems like the credit core system they developed uh, about two years ago. Therefore, there is not, not much freedom of choice, but they do use AI-based technologies even for medical purposes. In countries like Rwanda, where there was a genocide 25 years ago and they simply didn't have the financial background to build a, you know, a traditionally normal healthcare system, they had to take a leap into digital health. So in Rwanda, medical drones can deliver supplies to locations that the ambulances cannot reach. They use telemedicine for most of the country because of the, the logistical reasons and the logistical issues and road conditions. Um, so they, they have AI-based medical record systems uh, using a, a UK-based company, Babylon Health Services. So they, they took a leap, but it's not really a freedom of choice whether patients can, can use these technologies because either they use these advanced technologies or they don't receive care at all. And then the third the third scenario was having a country <clears throat> with a system where patients do have a freedom of choice, like in the US, but uh, it's patients who have to push this agenda forward. Um, many physicians have no incentives for using these technologies or to answer questions about technologies and genomic tests that patients have at home. Therefore, patients have the freedom of choice, but in practice, it doesn't really work out because of the because the other stakeholder, medical professionals, has been left out of this conversation and are left without incentives. And the fourth one was more like um, um, a rainbow scenario, like in Estonia, where uh, even the elderly population received free genomic tests. Uh, you know, in many other countries, they would say that why uh, why should they give a genetic test to the elderly population? While it, it might be late to predict diseases from happening, it's a, it's a cruel expression or a cruel sentence, but that's how many countries think, not Estonia. There they provide even elderly people with genomic tests. So they are really pushing hard to try to predict and prevent as many things as possible. 
patients have a freedom of choice. They can just use traditional healthcare or they opt in to use these advanced technologies and they have a system built in for that. They have incentives for medical professionals. They have clear policies to make it happen. So um, I didn't, we didn't want to pinpoint these four countries. We just wanted to give four different pictures about the freedom of choice and, and the chance that patients have uh, about using digital health technologies for their healthcare. When you think about the United States, you talked about us having an incentive issue. How can we overcome that? In many cases, the physical examination is simply overhyped and we don't need it to happen that often. But for decades, we have been talking about this and many others have been talking about the importance of extending the doctor-patient communication towards a range of you know, digital communication channels and technologies. But there were so many physicians against it. There were no clear policies for it. And as nobody and no professionals help patients understand the, the expectation, the consequences, then there was a big rejection overall. But because of the COVID uh, pandemic, this March, it happened overnight. I mean, in the span of weeks, in many, in many places in the world, from Catalonia to the US, I've seen skyrocketing numbers about video consultation visits because simply patients and physicians didn't have a chance to choose from. They, they had to choose to opt in to use video consultation or you know telephone services. Otherwise, they would not be able to provide or receive care at all. So this technological transformation has happened overnight, but the cultural components are still missing. So for the incentive part, uh, what would help definitely is by if, if medical associations started providing clear policies about remote care and consider it not like an extension to the traditional doctor-patient meetings, but an absolute essential core element of practicing medicine, because what's different here is that I can't see you in person. But for many medical issues and questions, I don't have to see you in person. So this is not something like an external component. It should be at the core of practicing medicine, that would definitely be a first step forward. But also it's not pocket science. So you know, medical associations like the Canadian Medical Association have provided good enough solutions for that, pushing their, their own governments to implement the, the, the policies that they have created to make remote care a part of everyday medicine. One more question about the United States. Many people here receive healthcare from their employer and as a result of that, or because they do receive healthcare from their employer, privacy is absolutely critical. And I can imagine a future where if healthcare records did get um, somehow hacked and employers were able to see records or some sort of screening process, uh, were able to access healthcare records of future employees, um, that could be a very, very challenging thing for many people who are seeking to leave their employer for another employer. Do you have any comments on that and, and ways around that potential uh, issue or challenge? I understand that in countries like the US, you, are, you depend on your insurance system, whether you get it from your employer or, or you have a private insurance system. But we see that the trends at least show that healthcare is becoming more and more globalized, where I might be able to to receive a better care or service through the systems I can get access to because I have internet connection and I can reach out to technologies and startups worldwide compared to the, the care I receive from my country. Just to give you a real life 
practical example that has happened in reality. I can send a, a cancerous tissue sample to a Belgian startup where they can sequence the DNA, the genome of that cancerous tissue, trying to find driver mutation, that's how they call it, which make which might make me um, eligible for a clinical trial that might be run by a French pharma company on a Spanish island. And that clinical trial would include precision therapy focusing on the driver mutation my own cancerous tissue contains. This way, I could receive, again, precision targeted treatment for my cancer without meeting anyone in my, own, in my country's healthcare system. I'm not saying that this is an ideal scenario, but that's how healthcare is becoming globalized. That's how we might end up depending more on individual services and, and companies rather than just solely on our governments or country's healthcare system. That's a really good point. I've heard stories about people from the United States flying to India for surgeries, elective surgeries, because the cost was so much less, or seniors going to Mexico to get um, medication filled, or going to Canada because the medication was cheaper. But the example that you laid out uh, is, you know, has a lot of potential, and especially for you know, like you're in Europe, countries are pretty close together you can get you know to to various countries that might have different services available to people so that is a very very interesting point that healthcare is becoming more global and i might not even have to travel to a country so i, I don't even want to right. talk about medical right. tourism just my data traveling across borders instead of me and at the end of the day i can still get the prescription or medication i need or treatment in general that i need even i can get it in my country but to find out which treatment would work best for me Maybe my country is not able to help me with that because of the you know socialized medicine system they have, because of the lack of financials for implementing really state-of-the-art technologies like liquid biopsy in cancer and whole genome sequencing. But I can still reach out and send my samples across borders. That's I think it's it's more important here than me physically traveling to a location to receive care. Getting back to digital health technologies, when you think about aging populations, do you see barriers for people who may be elderly understanding how these technologies work and being able to get the most out of these technologies? Unfortunately, I do. Just like in the case of any other technologies being used by the elderly population, not coming from healthcare. You know, they have a, those who have not grown up with learning to use newer and newer gadgets and devices, for them, it might even be inhuman to, to turn to technologies to have a discussion with their medical professionals. But first, when there is no other chance of doing that, of having a discussion with their medical professionals, then, of course, they opt in to, to use that. Second, what, what I see as an example around the world is that their, their kids, their now middle-aged kids, bring, are bringing the technologies uh, into their lives and homes, and, and they help them, the kids help them um, install and establish these technologies and maybe help them understand that now we cannot even visit you in person during the pandemic, but through these digital channels, these you know um, tablets and smartphones, we can still have conversations even daily. And this is also, I think it also shows the the, the importance of the cultural component of these technological changes that it's not about us pushing the elderly population to use a device we want them to use. It's about helping them realize that what these technologies are useful in or useful for. And then 
I mean, the examples I've seen even around my family and uh, my relatives is that when they find out that this way they can, for example, get in touch more easily with their um, grandkids, then they do it immediately because that's a huge inspiration or motivation for them to keep on using the device. But what, what definitely doesn't work is just dropping technologies at them and expecting that their healthcare will be better. It requires their kids, it requires their medical professionals to help them embrace this transformation and, and to be there, to be there for them, even, you know, emotionally and culturally understanding how these technologies work, what these technologies can bring to the table and why it makes sense to use them. You've said that the future is telemedicine and at-home lab tests. I think I'm paraphrasing that or recalling that correctly. We've talked about telemedicine. Could you talk about what at-home lab tests are and what sort of availability is there right now and what there will be in the future? I, last year, I've ha- I had many different at-home lab tests because I wanted to, you know, I, I always test new technologies. I had many genomic testing services and I used whole genome sequencing and so on to learn about how this works. So I can, you know, describe it to the general population about what they can expect from those technologies and services. So at last year, I had many at-home blood tests because those companies started, provi- started providing such tests, which means you order the test, like, uh, for example, about uh, food allergies or or uh, medication sensitivity, uh, they send you a sampling tube or, you know, they have different packages for different purposes. I, I send back the sample I could collect at home. All of these processes were quite straightforward. And then they analyze your blood or uh, saliva. And then after a few days or weeks, they send you the results online. And I love the general idea that I don't have to go to a lab locally especially when there is no service providing, for example, microbiome testing in my local healthcare system. So even though I could collect a sample locally, there is no company or or service I could use to get my microbiome analyzed. But there was a company in California, so they sent me a sampling tube. I sent back my fecal sample. They analyzed it and sent me the, the genomic results of my microbiome test. So with a nutritionist locally, I could discuss what kind of dietary changes I should implement into my lifestyle based on the microbiome I'm living with every day. And I think the the general idea is that not in in all cases, but in many cases, these at-home lab tests are just as good as any lab test you can have in a laboratory. And last year, I had this prediction. I always make uh, predictions for a year ahead about the major trends I'm looking forward to. And this was one of them. And that time, of course, I had no idea that the pandemic was coming. And because of the pandemic, at-home lab tests now have a golden age. And I think it was the, the, the pandemic meant the final push for this technology to get to become mainstream. Because now, even if, if it, even not going to a laboratory means, you know, less exposure to the infection, um, it means you don't put more pressure on the healthcare system already, but just by yourself at home, you can provide a sample that is needed for a test. You can send it back, be sent you know, packages day by day for different purposes. And then they tell you the results that, I, that you can discuss with your medical professional. Everything is happening remotely. The lab test, you know, most of these labs are, uh, are performing at a, a high quality because those are uh, cross-checked and tested by major regulatory organizations. So I think it's a jackpot. It's a win-win-win situation. It's a win for the healthcare system because I'm 
not putting more pressure on them. It's a win for me because I don't have, don't have to go to a lab to provide a sample that I can provide myself. And it's a win for the company because that's, you know, it means business for them. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah, that's really exciting. And it sounds like you don't suffer any, um, comprom- you don't compromise any quality in the process or very little quality in the process. Is that accurate? I mean, that should be the case. I, I know I'm, I sound, usually I sound very optimistic because I had a chance to- You're a very to, optimistic you know, guy. I appreciate that. I, I am like techno, that. I'm a techno-optimist, <laughs> of course, but these companies reach out to me, so I have, I have the luxury of choosing the ones uh, I find the, the most reliable. But when you are a patient looking for like a microbiome testing company, it's going to be a struggle to find out yourself whether that company is reliable enough, whether the, the way the laboratory works is you know compliant with major country laws. Therefore, still, without your medical professional, even though these at-home lab tests are available, it's easy to feel doomed and lost in this jungle of health and digital information. You know, that's why, again, it's a cultural transformation that I think it's more important that you, you raise the issue that you want to have a microbiome testing service with your medical professional and, and you try to find a good service together, even if your physician has no background or experience with using such services, but you do it together, I think it's more beneficial than whether you have a chance to reach out to these services alone. I think uh, in January of, of 2020, you listed out the top 10 medical technologies for the future. And one of them is 3D printing of medications or just 3D printing. And I'm wondering where we are with the ability to 3D print medications. When will that become a reality for, let's say, many, many, the masses, as opposed to just a handful of of people? This is one of those technologies that whenever I come across examples like that, or I see this in action, I always feel like I, I, I meet science fiction right there. But there are companies working on uh, 3D printing medications like the the UK-based company called FabRx. I think they are at the forefront of innovation in this. And whenever I talk to them, I always ask the question, well, it sounds great that in for some you know certain medical conditions like kids taking their medications, you can print out the same medications in an octopus shape and then, or Super Mario shape. And it means that kids want to take the medication so the compliance gets higher and it's beneficial for everyone. I understand that. But, you know, when does it come to the, the patient bedside? Uh, when does it get implemented into medical care? What is the limitation of what you can print out? And I'm always being told by that company that literally they see scientifically that everything, any kind of medication, even biological therapies, which are very expensive therapies used in autoimmune conditions, can be printed out with the, the, the 3D printers that they have been developing. So while I see no now, no technological barrier, I still see um, a kind of rejection from the medical community because of the, the doubts they have, uh, whether, this, whether this technology is viable enough. And I still don't see this being used in action, except for one where I think the, the FD, the US-based Food and Drug Administration approved a medication for um, treating epilepsy, and that medication was 3D printed because in that way, the way it is 3D being 3D printed, it can dissolve under the tongue in seconds, and that's what you need uh, during an epilepsy seizure. Uh, I think that's the only example I know about, which is approved by a major regulatory organization and is still using uh, 3D printing-based technology. 
so the technology is there. I don't see any theoretical barriers anymore, but it's still not in action worldwide. What does mental health care look like in 10 years? You might think that even because of the pandemic, there are great remote care services. So we can now reach out using these technologies and digital channels to even more patients dealing with mental health issues so we can help even more people. But discussing these issues through a digital channel is not really something that helps deal with mental health issues. Uh, I've seen how apps like Headspace and Calm have had the best year ever in 2020 because you know the number of downloads, but I don't see how talking to a psychologist or psychiatrist through a remote care service is the, the experience I'm looking for here. So mental health is also, I love using games that can improve my cognitive health, but I still prefer playing football in person. Uh, I love the chance that I can um, take some, make some notes about my mental health uh, through by using apps on the long term. But I think uh, an, a real uh, meeting with my friends, having coffee together, is just having a better, a bigger benefit or impact on my mental health than than making these notes on the apps. So while technology is here to help with mental health issues, usually that's not the channel that we are looking for when it comes to trying to solve uh, that problem for millions of patients worldwide. That's fair and it's honest. You know, you can't just wave a magic wand and, and think that these health technologies are going to be applicable in every healthcare space. So I think it's a very fair assessment. And we have to uh, take now the pandemic into consideration that so many of us um, are at home or even though there are no lockdowns, we still stay at home for obvious reasons. And I just, I used to, I now usually say that when you live in a swimming pool, you can only swim all day long. So when we finish work and you, you actually, you don't finish, you stop working. Then I I have my uh, hobbies on my computer too. I play chess. I, I meet my friends. All these things happen online. So there are many areas or aspects of healthcare I have, I think, clear visions about for a decade from now. But mental health is none of them, because, simply because the changes are so enormous right now that are happening in mental health. And I'm talking about these changes for the worse, that I can't even imagine how we will deal with these issues, or maybe if we will have more mental health issues than issues about general chronic conditions because of the pandemic and because of the impact the pandemic is having on this generation, uh, even in the coming years or so. I serve on the board of uh, an organization called Harmony Foundation. It's a drug and alcohol addiction facility. What sorts of impact do you think digital health technologies will have on the drug and alcohol addiction field? We have been checking many apps and services, but the only example is that that really seemed to me like something that's, that's, that might be useful uh, or twofolds. One is about virtual reality, where I've seen amazing studies showing that if you just give a, a VR device, a VR headset to a, a patient dealing with a sort of addiction, and maybe you show them how, uh, what their life might look like in five years, keeping up with the same routines and habits they have today, nothing happens. What, but when their mental health advocate, their medical professional, acts as a coach in this process, why using the VR headset? So again, 
the doctor-patient relationship isn't the focus, not the use of that technology, then miracle happens. I've been also uh, quite supportive of those applications that that try to make us see the the world in a way we would see by keeping the same lifestyle like 10 years from now. I've seen that in um, uh, vision issues uh, for patients dealing with addictions that if they keep on having the same addiction, uh, their vision might change this or that. And they, they showed it to the patient by allowing them to look through a camera of a smartphone with an app running about this. And they could see the real world they are seeing right now but through the lens of that patient 10 years from now, keeping the same habits and same addiction. These might be like good, you know, push, pushes forward, but I haven't seen medical treatments when it comes to technologies because I simply maybe that the solution for addiction doesn't lie in technology. It lies in the doctor-patient relationship. We We have experimented or we are using uh, VR with some of our clients at Harmony Foundation. And I think it does have really incredible potential. And I know Cedar sinai has experimented with um, VR, using it for pain reduction um, and as a kind of a distraction for people um, so they don't uh, request pain medication. And I think they've seen like uh, the response dropping by about 25% of, of how frequently people want um, pain medication. So I do see applications there. I have just two more questions for you. The first is you said you make predictions every year about healthcare and, and what might happen in the next year. So what predictions will you be making for 2021? I don't make predictions per se because I just I don't think that there is a timeline. And my job as a futurist is, is to tell you that in six months this or that will happen because that's not how it works. I think what futurists do is that we find out the desired visions for the future of healthcare in my case. And my job, my real job, is to find out the gaps between what we might need to do between what we have today and how we can make that desired vision come true. So I'm looking more at trends that might make those visions come true. And of course, now the pandemic has has shifted our attention to certain technologies from at-home lab tests to health sensors used for finally clinical purposes, not just for the, the fun notion that I can you know count the number of steps I take a day. No one cares about that anymore. I want ECG in my, my uh, smartwatch. I want to have the chance to get early warning signs about potential medical issues later on. Uh, our attention has been shifted towards artificial intelligence being used for public health purposes, notably, notably finding out when next outbreaks can happen and how those can take place. Using artificial intelligence for analyzing the data, we can measure the, with the devices we already own, from smart, smartphones to fitness trackers and, and simple handheld devices. Uh, our attention has been shifted towards AI being used for logistics like what we've seen in Germany in the last couple of months, how they had how they used AI to um, deal with supply issues and uh, to organize a supply chain for the vaccine rollout. I guess these are the five topics I'm the most interested in. But in general, I think what we will focus on the most in 2021 is to find out how we can make this cultural transformation take place a bit faster than expected 
because, you know, as I mentioned there, the technological changes took place in weeks and usually cultural transformations take years, if not decades. And, and now my fear, my biggest fear is that the science fiction that I had been talking about for so long just became real, but the cultural uh, changes are missing and it might lead to a disaster where you can indeed reach out to technologies and use them for your care, but there is no chance or time for building empathy, trust. So real patient-doctor relationships, which I think have been, are, and will always be at the core of practicing medicine. My last question for you, and you can just answer yes or no, but I read Sapiens recently by Yuval Noah Harari. You might have read it. Of course. And the the question is about amortality. <laughs> can you imagine a future when humans are amortal, not living forever, but maybe managing diseases indefinitely and and ending the aging process? What do, what is your thought on that? Because I'm a I'm an optimist too, and I and I actually can see this now. Maybe not in my lifetime, but um, maybe in a hundred years or two hundred years. What do you think? From the age of six, I've read too many science fiction books. Not to say You're an yes. Arthur C. Clarke fan, I uh, know. I'm, yeah. Yes, um, and Stanislav Lem are my two favorites. So uh, as you didn't mention a timeline, of course, I think theoretically at, at some point it must be possible that we can understand mostly how the brain works um, and we might be able to, to save consciousness or, or load consciousness to a technological place. But it's so far away in the future that um, I have no fears of saying out loud the future is that, of course, it's possible because I'm pretty sure I won't leave by then, even though I do a lot. I spend a lot of time and effort and money to try to bring along and help life. And I'm shooting for at least 100 here, even though just having a chance for that. But I, I don't think I will experience that in my lifetime. Yeah, fair enough. Dr. Meshko, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom with us and thank you for being a genius. Thank you so much for having me. Really, I really, I really enjoyed the whole discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thank you to our sponsor, the Think to Perform Research Institute. The next episode will explore the future of education. Our guest is Justin Reich, director of MIT's Teaching Systems Lab. Justin is also the author of Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. That episode will be available January 26, 2021. Thank you to our producer, Devin McGrath, and our research and historical consultant, Brian Bierbaum. If you love this podcast, please let us know by subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To subscribe, go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.